Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. to episode 7 of the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel Comics series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week in episode 7, we are looking at Excalibur number 7, Goblin Morn, originally published in April 1989. The creative team is Chris Claremont on writing, Alan Davis on penciling and plotting, Paul Neary on inks, Glynis Oliver on colors, Tom Orzachowski and Augustin Mass on lettering, and Terry Kavanaugh on editing. Your wisdom has forged this ring. Hereafter, so that we remember our bonds, we shall always come together in a circle to hear and tell of deeds good and brave. I will build a round table where this fellowship shall meet, and a hall about the table, and a castle about the hall, and I will marry. (laughs) And the land will have an heir. The wheel Excalibur. Knights of the Round Table. This is part two of Excalibur's participation in the Inferno event, a line-wide crossover centered around the X-Men franchise and even more centrally centered around the characters of Ileana Rasputin, a.k.a. Magic, and Madeline Pryor, the one-time wife of Scott Summers, a.k.a. Cyclops, who becomes, in this event, the Goblin Queen. We talked last episode about the symbology of demons in relation to this event, focusing for the most part on Rachel and Megan. The focus shifts in this issue to Brian, Kurt, and especially Kitty, who spends a significant part of the issue forced into the role of the horror movie Final Girl. We're going to spend plenty of time talking about the significance of that, I'm sure, and maybe get into some discussion, which we largely avoided last week, of how Excalibur's involvement in Inferno relates to or differentiates itself from the rest of the Inferno event. We've got a super smart guest to help us through all of these things, who I will introduce in a moment. But first, we'll introduce our starting lineup, the folks who've been here since day one, starting with myself. I am Dr. Anna Papard. I'm still not Kurt Wagner's official PR manager, but I am a writer, talker, and occasional university instructor who specializes in representations of gender and sexuality in comics. I'm the editor of a book called Super Sex, Sexuality, Fantasy, and the Superhero. I am also the co-host of another comic book podcast with another member of this podcast called Three Panel Contrast. I am joined, as always, by Mav, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Chris Maverick. You can call me Mav. I am the co-host of Vox Popcast, which is another pop culture podcast that neither of you are on regularly, but you've both been on. And uh, I am a comic book researcher, researcher of cultural studies, uh, particularly 
particularly issues of class, race, gender, and sexuality in 20th and 21st century pop culture. I'm a lifelong comic fan, and I'm a big Excalibur fan. And this is going to be interesting because, I, you know, we've been talking the last couple of weeks about this crossover and the way Excalibur sits on the outside of stuff. So I'm looking forward to this one. Yeah, we should have lots to talk about there. We sort of avoided some of those discussions last episode, so we'll, we'll get to it in this mm-hmm. one. Andrew, if you would like to introduce yourself briefly. Uh, hi, I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann. I teach at the University of Waterloo, um, and I run a Chris Claremont-themed research project called The Claremont Run. You run an excellent and thorough and amazing research project called The Claremont Run, which I imagine many of our listeners have found us through Claremont Run. Thank you. As I mentioned, we have another very special guest with us for this week's ep. We are joined today by Matt Linton. Welcome, Matt. Hi, thank you for having me. Matt is a PhD student in film and media studies at Wayne State University with a focus on multiracial identities, visual narratives, and hybridity. He writes on comics, film, and television for the Kino Club 313 blog, created a short-lived webcomic, and has written on the X-Men and horror. So you should be ideally situated to walk us through some of the dynamics in this comic. I know you chose this episode on purpose, so I'm really looking forward to a lot of (laughs) your thoughts that you're going to have on this Kitty and Brian sequence in particular, but also the whole comic. So Matt, before we get into our discussion, though, I always like to ask our guests about what their prior familiarity with Excalibur is. So is this your first time reading it, or had you read the series prior to this? Um, No, actually, I started reading Excalibur when it was coming out. Weirdly enough, like, my introduction to comic books in general was the Mutant Massacre um, X-Men storyline, which, like, Mm -hmm. Excalibur kind of spins out of, like, a couple years later, I think. And so I... I was on board with Excalibur right away. Um, I've been kind of the prototypical, like, Gen X male Kitty Pride fanboy um, <laughs> for the entirety of my comic reading life. And I think, and, you know, I mentioned one of the reasons why I chose this episode in particular was I think I pretty much said uh, anything Kitty Pride and Lockheed. Um, I, was a little, I was a little disappointed at the lack of Lockheed in this issue. But yeah, uh, this is where, this is my version of Kitty Pride and really kind of my, like, second go-to x-men team is excalibur um yeah after yeah (laughs) well yeah i mean i was like that's still pretty good i mean like (laughs) i'm like like, here existing in this the in the space of like excalibur self-deprecation where i'm all like second best is pretty good i'll take it (laughs) yeah i'm i'm my go-to is like the paul smith chris claremont era you know and so like this is about two-thirds of that team so i'm i'm good with this team it's, it's got kitty it's got nightcrawler i'm okay it's got scott's so, yeah. daughter it's got scott's daughter who i still don't entirely understand there's this is going to be a recurring theme this episode there are a couple characters that i just i still you know 30 years later cannot entirely wrap my head around including like madeline Pryor, who you mentioned the, the writers of the current comics also have that trouble so you know yeah we will get to some of those we're going to come back to some first impressions for a moment but let's do our issue summary and then we'll come back to some of what you made of this issue and probably get into some of those discussions about the inferno event which we didn't do a lot of in the last episode so excalibur number seven goblin morn opens with the minor demon crotus walking the chaotic streets of an inferno infested new york suddenly he stumbles upon his heart's desire rachel summers standing in a shop window transformed into a mannequin in a wedding dress nightcrawler who almost succeeded in gracefully falling from the top of the ever-growing demonically possessed empire state 
building at the end of the last issue, lies face down unconscious at her feet. Crotus recognizes the Phoenix Force in Rachel and plans to use a magic book he's holding under his arm to bind her power to himself. From there, we check in on Kitty Pride, who's trapped in an enchanted movie theater with a brainwashed Brian Braddock, where they're caught up in an action horror extravaganza. According to the movie poster, Brian is playing Fast Buck, while Kitty is playing the victim in a film called Teen Bimbo Gore Shocker 23. Brian attacks Kitty, and she uses a combination of phasing and ninja-ing to subdue him, pinning him with a large knife under his jugular. A suddenly humble Brian asks Kitty if she's going to kill him, and she says she wants to more than anything. She comes to her senses just in time for Brian to transform into a Freddy Krueger-type monster, while she turns into a cheerleader, much to her dismay. While that's going on, an anthropomorphized garbage truck discovers the unconscious nightcrawler and eats him. Kurt wakes up just in time to be mistaken for a demon by the other people the truck swallowed. The commotion caused by Kurt protecting himself from their subsequent attack causes the truck to barf everybody up. Kurt ascends a tall building to scope out the scene where he befriends an animated gargoyle. This will become important later. Kurt leaves his new friend behind to rescue a woman on the street from a group of zombie mannequins. He and the woman take shelter in the Forbidden Planet comic book store, which has been transformed into a science fiction landscape. Kurt helps the laser rifle-equipped employees fight off an ever-advancing and seemingly unstoppable army of mannequins until he spots a mannequin wearing Rachel's costume. For some reason, he knows this is important, so he steals the mannequin with an assist from his old gargoyle friend. Meanwhile, cheerleader Kitty is in a high school running from Ryan, now identified as a monstrous custodian called the Custodian. She's terrified, <laughs> even though she knows she shouldn't be. The fantasy is affecting her judgment and emotions. She tries to hide in a locker, but it's already taken up by Doug Ramsey. When she finally encounters Goblin Princess Megan, she transforms Kitty and Brian a final time into ballroom dancers, with the intention, apparently, of having Brian dance Kitty to death. When that doesn't work, the setting becomes a castle where Goblin Princess Megan sits on a throne with a slave costume, Brian chained at her feet. Kitty defeats Megan and transforms everyone back into their regular selves by manifesting Ileana Rasputin's soul sword, wondering in the process if her ability to do so means something has happened to Ileana. Elsewhere, Crotus has started the ritual to bind Rachel, which takes the form of a marriage ceremony. Kurt and his gargoyle friend disrupt the ceremony and set things right by tossing the magic book and the Rachel mannequin into a phoenix fire energy thingy with the other mannequin Rachel, which somehow works, mostly. Rachel is freed from her enchantment and Crotus is defeated, but Kurt's gargoyle friend is no more. In the final scene, the inferno is still raging, but at least everyone is themselves again, which has to be considered a victory amid everything. So, Excalibur survives Inferno, but some people don't. I am never not moved by how genuinely sad Kurt seems to be by the loss of his little gargoyle friend. It's just so heartbreaking. He holds his head in his hand and he's so sad. And, you know, I know it shouldn't really matter because presumably a lot of actual human New Yorkers perished in this event as well. And yet we get this like incredible moment of pathos with Kate with Kurt and this stone sculpture. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know, I know. Anyway, um, let's start with some first impressions, and we'll start with you, Matt. Guests' privilege and all of that. Um, do you have a recall? Like, do you remember reading this issue when it came out, and do you remember having any sense of how this kind of fit into the larger Inferno storyline, or or just anything related to any of that? Um, yeah, I remember. I mean, I do remember reading this issue, and I remember reading the Inferno storyline. This was the first crossover that confused me a lot um, as I was reading okay. it, <laughs> probably for the reasons that I mentioned earlier. You know, like I said, I started with the Mutant Massacre, and then I, I think Fall of the Mutants was after that, I believe. And those I could follow just fine, because I was reading, like, everything Marvel at the time. Um, Inferno, I think because I didn't understand the central premise, I had no idea what was going on. 
Um, so for me, this was very much just a like, oh, Excalibur goes to New York and weird stuff happens <laughs> kind of story. And even rereading the issue now, I I kind of feel like it's the same thing. It's like, this is Excalibur <laughs> having a weird adventure in New York that kind of sort of overlaps with other stuff that's going on somewhere else in New York. Yeah, I mean, I want to talk about, yeah, its relation to, you know, how it kind of maintains its identity or doesn't potentially, or, you know, what Inferno was actually doing as an event, you know, to what extent for a lot of the tie-in series, is it just an excuse to have some crazy visuals and crazy action sequences and experiment with a lot of BDSM fashion, which we see going on in this issue as well. Andrew or, or, or Mav, first impressions? Um, I kind of wanted to throw something in Matt's direction, just because but compared to the rest of Inferno... I actually find this one a little bit tamer. Do you know what I mean? Like it's not as violent as what we were seeing in X-Men Exterminators and um, X-Factor at the time. Is that fair to say? No, I, I think so. I mean, I'm trying to remember a lot of it. Honestly, the, the Inferno tie-ins that stick out the most to me were the ones that were involving the X-Men characters. Mm-hmm. Like I know there's the Daredevil story and everything. So it's just like anytime I come across an issue from like this time period where it's like, oh, New York is very, very hot. That's my impression of Inferno. But yeah, I do think that like, and I think that's kind of Excalibur in general is they kind of took like the lighter approach to some of these events. But honestly, I don't remember what the central premise of Inferno was other than Madeline Pryor becomes the demon queen and the demon who trained Ileana is also yeah. involved. Um, uh, sort of. Sort of. <laughs> should, should we do a recap? Do we need, so this is what I was wondering. Cause um, before we say that I'm much in the same boat as Andrew in that I do understand the crossover. I enjoyed the crossover. I'm going to say tentatively because at the time of publication Ilyana is my favorite character so I'm very very looking forward to this as it's coming out I had issues with how it wraps up and everything but what I think makes the the Daredevil book which this is not a Daredevil podcast but the Daredevil Avengers Fantastic Four all deal with the ramifications of Inferno obviously Excalibur does and what makes them interesting is they mostly don't know what's going on they just deal oh my god there are demons in New York we've got to deal with this is is sort of the story line in those it's a crossover because new york's being affected but there's not really they're so far removed from the action that they don't know what's going on um one of the things that weirds me out about inferno to this day is that during the course of inferno the new mutants find out that the x-men are alive colossus guest stars they know and um nobody bothers to tell kitty Hey, you know, your boyfriend and your family, they're alive, just so you know. Like, she doesn't know after this crossover's over. It, oh, it, do they know, though? Because adult yeah. Ileana meets Colossus, but nobody else does, right? So wouldn't it be that her memory of that wouldn't survive her being de-aged? Uh, it, it, she seems to remember everything else. The comics are weird. The New Mutants comics after this are weird. Does, I've got that, no... make sense to, does that make sense to you, Andrew? <laughs> Sorry, does which part make sense? Does it make sense that it seems like the New Mutants would have been aware that the X-Men were alive from the event because i just reread it and i thought it was just iliana interacting with colossus and then when she that gets was my age, interpretation she too a, yeah but Ileana she wouldn't have a memory so. of that anymore because like we're changing the future 
uh, okay, I don't know. It 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 does it is inconsistent. I always read it, and I still read it as they're aware and they're just all off doing their own things. It's an odd choice. We've talked before about it's odd that the X Men aren't telling them in the first place. But my point of it was Excalibur is not really part of the crossover. They're dealing with ramifications. So the major crossover is Ilyana's hench person. Essentially, Sim is a demon that works for Ilyana. She's not. He's not really her trainer. That's Belasco. But he he attempts to take over um, Limbo at the same time as this other demon attempts to take over Limbo. While all this is going on, Forge, who's Storm's ex-boyfriend, is also doing some magic ramification stuff. And Nastra, the other demon, decides to corrupt Madeline Pryor. So there's basically all this demonic stuff happens at the same time and it causes hell on Earth. That's the premise. Well, let's get at maybe sort of some of those ideas about how a crossover is going to work. And maybe it'll get us at sort of some of the finer points of how Excalibur is interacting with this. So as presumably most people listening to this podcast will be aware, crossovers have a long history in the Marvel Comics universe. You know, there's even been sort of like a, a retrospective defining that golden age fight between the Human Torch and the Submariner as sort of the first Marvel co- crossover, which is true, but you know, you're trying to incorporate it into a universe of which that wasn't the central theme at that time. But anyway, this is how the Marvel universe works, right? They want to tie everything together in this huge serialized continuity storytelling universe. So on the one hand, crossovers are this natural progression of that motivation. They're a natural extension of Marvel's shared continuity universe. On the other hand, like the shared continuity universe, the opportunities for sophisticated and evolving storytelling go hand in hand with commercialism, right? We're trying to sell a lot of comics by tying them into this event. So crossovers are arguably especially tough for series like Excalibur that are often fairly isolated from the larger Marvel universe. And we've been talked in some of our previous episodes about that being one of the central draws of Excalibur, that it exists in this isolated space. So it's an interesting question about how Excalibur works when they are, in theory, interacting with this larger Marvel universe, with the larger X-Men universe. And I mean, one of the things that I think works well about the Excalibur issues is the fact that they're actually not involved at the larger event. You get to sort of preserve their autonomy, but even that thing that you're saying about they're dealing with the ramifications of Inferno, that reminds me of the whole premise of Excalibur, that like they're a group coming together through the trauma of the X-Men having died and dealing with the ramifications of that and picking up the pieces. And that's what they're doing in Inferno as well, which I kind of love as kind of a theme for Excalibur as a series. Yeah, I do think there's something to like, there is almost this through line of Excalibur through like, you know, the Mutant Massacre, the Fall of the Mutants and Inferno that even though they are adjacent to these things um, and didn't exist you know, for a couple of them, they're they're distinctly tied to it. It's like, that's the way in which they're tied to the X-Men universe, despite the X-Men being off in Australia and, you know, them being off in England. Thinking about, like, Inferno as a crossover, I do think one of the things that works for Inferno as a crossover is it's almost 50% a crossover as setting. It's, like I said, that idea of, like, mm-hmm. you know, the hell on Earth, New York is on fire, um, things are super hot, and there's demons. And once you have that, then you can easily bring in any character you want to just sort of deal with that without having to get into all of the confusion of which demon is doing what in at what particular time or who or even who the main like bad guy is in the story all of that's kind of tangential to it um which i think works well for excalibur like i guess slight spoilers but it almost feels a little bit like the sort of cross time caper stuff that's going to come up where it's like 
it, they come to a place and they have an adventure with different versions of themselves. And that's kind of the extent to which they're involved. Yeah, I mean, I'm just always interested in how the Excalibur issues, they seem like a very, they seem, like it doesn't seem like we're having this sudden jump that I think we'll feel more when we get to the next issue where we have this Ron Lim pencil issue where they're in New York rather than the UK and we'll get kind of a tonal shift there. But mm-hmm. these Excalibur issues that are set in Inferno feel very Excalibur though, even though it's set in part of this larger event that they're not really part of. And although they don't have any sort of measurable impact on that event they're just kind of dealing with their own crap like it does feel very Excalibur and I mean Andrew you brought up that the violence is like a little bit different in these Excalibur issues did you want to sort of expand on that sort of yeah Um, I think when people talk about Inferno they sort of talk about it as like an artist's duel sometimes Mm, (laughs) and and you were seeing like Silvestri bring his absolute A game and we were seeing um lots of lots of people Simonson Mm -hmm. and Blevins and such but um Davis is up to the task, right? Like he's, he's really doing great work on the first 15 pages of this book. And then I I just feel like Claremont didn't write as much for him to do in that horror genre, the way that he wrote for um, particularly Silvestri, that, that, that grim morbid spectacle to me isn't quite here Um, as matt was saying it's more atmospheric and a little tonally like lighter i wonder if it's important though for excalibur because excalibur is always sort of existing on that boundary or that kind of fine line between like trauma and humor or like you know we've talked so much about genre bending in previous episodes and there's something that can happen in excalibur and we'll see this in some future issues where when they go too real or too dark that balance gets disrupted and so i don't know if that's like part of kind of the identity of excalibur to keep things and it's weird to be talking about this being lighter this is like an issue in which one of the team members gets brainwashed (laughs) into trying to kill kitty and it's it's quite like it's not as graphic as like a slasher film but i mean it definitely like evokes that genre so i mean to talk about this as like not being violent or not being graphic it definitely is violent and graphic but just compared to some of the other things that were going on in this event i think we have some of the transformations of the space treated in like slight well like i mean i think about something like from the main x-men series you know when matt and and Havoc are in the restaurant and the people go into the elevator and then you just see the blood coming out of the elevator because they've been killed in the elevator. We don't have anything as graphic as that in these Excalibur issues. Kirk fights mannequins because yeah. they don't die. I think it might speak to a bigger problem that, that maybe we've been kind of getting around to here. I don't think Excalibur's ready to be a part of an X-Men crossover. You know what I mean? Mm. We're five issues in before we throw them into Inferno. And so mm-hmm. much of Excalibur's identity depends upon, you know, being excluded from the X-Men. And like, again, five issues in general just isn't enough to really build them up to a point where we can really define them. But you have to know they wanted to have that Inferno label on the cover. So it, it might be a situation of just, you know, art colliding with industry well yeah i think you know building off of that i think that's also part of how the how the character dynamics work in the story which is really interesting is that like they're essentially separated like like they're not ready as a team to be part of this crossover and claremont doesn't really treat them as a team he treats them as like you know it almost reads as like a nightcrawler solo story for nightcrawler's part you know rachel is completely sort of moved off the board megan isn't really herself and then it's you know brian and kitty having their sort of like meta horror action movie commentary going on at the same time so it's almost like i don't know if you recognized at the time like yeah as a team they don't really fit here but this is a way that i can kind of like be engaged and have the tag on the book but also just sort of explore some character stuff without really affecting the plot of you know the characters too much 
Does that make mm-hmm. sense? And using sort yeah. of, yeah, using the conceit of demons or even just the way supervillains often operate to sort of illustrate something about the characters. Because I do think we do see some character growth or at least some character sort of understanding building, particularly in the case of Kitty and Kurt, who I think are sort of the main characters in this particular story. But like, I'm going to, we can come back to that if you disagree. But, no, I um, agree with you. I, yeah. I just, I thought you would have said Kitty and Brian, um, which I I agree with you on the Kitty and Kurt, but I, I would also say very much Brian here. Let's come back to it when we come back to the Kitty and Brian storyline, because part of why I'm saying that is just because he doesn't seem conscious throughout much of that story and is being kind of like mobilized as a pawn rather than us hearing his thoughts about what's happening, whereas Kitty's perspective is so emphasized. But let's come back to that because Kurt's story is smaller. And I think let's talk about that first and then we'll come back to Kitty, which I think is going to be the bulk of our conversation. And, you know, I just want to exercise my power as the host of this podcast to make (laughs) us talk specifically about Kurt for a little bit. Because he's got this really fun and interesting storyline, as Matt mentioned. It's a little bit of a Kurt Solo story just set in the middle of this issue. And he's largely separate from the rest of the characters, although his storyline does affect Rachel. So what do we learn about Kurt through this little side story? Like, why is it here? Because I think it actually does serve a purpose in terms of we've been talking about his evolution into being a character who might be capable of being the leader of Excalibur. You know, we've debated who the leader of Excalibur is in the past. But I think you definitely see him coming into that role here through elements of his side story. And I was wondering... If any of you had any thoughts about this, why is Kurt's story here? What do we learn about him? Well, I think it comes down to obviously the gargoyle relationship, but yep. th- before that, it's premised with the idea of him being seen as one of the demons of hell who's come to New York and he gets attacked for it. Um, so having him meet someone who has that same, you know, you know, visual resemblance to the demons, who's like a totally cool guy and chill and heroic <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> I think that's an opportunity for him to sort of find a resolution from being confronted with his own demonic appearance as a result of Inferno. Question for you. Did we read the gargoyle as male or female and does it matter? I wondered that. I want to say female, but I'm not sure. Male to me, 100%. Okay. I also read the gargoyle as female, but wow. I don't I don't know why necessarily. <laughs> they, they flirt they flirt with Kurt and he flirts yeah. back a little bit, which you know I'm, is making a presumption yeah. of heterosexuality on Kurt, which is mm. fair or not fair. I mean it's just been established with him up to that point. I don't want to shut down any queer readings of Kurt. But I'm that's scanning why I said now I to see to if ask there's the ever question. a pronoun. I yeah, I'm scanning now to see if there's ever a pronoun. There I isn't. don't know that there is not. Yeah, I don't think there is. Do you think that ambiguity is intentional? Maybe because I, I, I never I like until this very very moment from a comic that is 32 years old i have never considered that gargoyle anything but male (laughs) (laughs) it's funny right because i mean i just wonder i mean like because there's like a default male that often happens with sort of non-human characters right like in cartoons and comics and yet the fact that they flirt with him was sort of what tipped me off which again is me imposing an assumption of heterosexuality on the scene but i still thought within that you know the ambiguity on flirting with male characters yeah yeah yeah. But I mean, I liked that as a Kurt thing, too, that, you know, like that emphasizes I've talked in the past sort of about his emotional intelligence and his empathy and, you know, him not caring about the gender of this character and still being willing to flirt with them. I just love that for him. I really, really love that for him. Yeah, Kurt does have like that. I don't know that Oscar Oscar Isaac vibe of like he has sexual chemistry with anyone regardless of gender. (laughs) Um, So 
<laughs> I, I can definitely see that. Uh, but yeah, I think I probably did read the character as female for that reason of like, oh, they're flirting. And, you know, so that, they're, yeah, the presumption of heterosexuality. I also think, I think there's an interesting bookend where, you know, I can't remember who mentioned that he starts off with being assumed to be one of the demons um, because of the resemblance. I think it was Andrew. But then at the end, like, well, towards the end when he uh, meets up with the young woman outside of Forbidden Planet, it's his, it's the recognition of him as an X-Men that, like, he has this certain level of fame, apparently, that he is recognizable visually as one of the X-Men. And so this character at least seems to have a certain level of trust in that, that, you know, he is a hero. And I don't know if maybe that's sort of spillover from the fall of the mutants where like i think you know their death was televised and so they died as heroes and that sort of shifted the perception of the x-men at least briefly if that's some of it or if it's just you know claremont likes to introduce some of these characters periodically who very clearly don't have a problem with mutants or the x-men as sort of a counter to the characters that do well it's always refreshing when we have kurt just treated like a person and not like a demon because you'd think that some people at least would but i mean that's always something that frustrates me so much in x-men comics that their relationship with the public is never like clear because presumably they would be celebrities in this world i mean people would know who they are they're on television they're in the newspaper they're online like they are all of these places wouldn't kurt be famous and yet he's still like walking down a street and having people attack him like they've never seen him before i'm less worried about that in excalibur in general than i am in contemporary x-men comics kurt is famous to me in that octavia which is the character's name she knows who he is i also read her as one of those characters that anna is always talking about where no there are just some women who are just sort of into it you know they see kurt and you're like yeah no the guy's you know he often like has like instant empathy with female yeah. characters which is part of why i might have read the gargoyle as female just because mm-hmm. that's sort of a trope of him as a character it's usually female characters that he has those instant bonds with but that said in the middle of inferno where we've spent assuming this is real we as new yorkers have spent now four days dealing with literal hell on earth and for the six or seven individuals who attack him we were just eaten by a garbage truck yeah and 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 so now there's this i mean for better or worse kurt does look like a demon that's always been his thing so i understand the hysteria of the moment but it uh, you know there is a little bit of forgiveness there where you know they might recognize kurt walking down the street on a day when the juggernaut is attacking in a way that they don't they don't recognize him on a day where there are literally millions of other demons yeah yeah that's fair i mean i'm thinking of kind of some later comics and Mm -hmm. stuff you know there was like an x-men gold thing where he's attacked by a mob again and you know they were sort of driven by emotional hate and there was you know those don't make sense mcguffin MacGuffin stuff around but at the same time (laughs) you're just like really again really i think what makes this you know after that scene what makes this work for me is the conversation with the gargoyle because what i love about the conversation of the gargoyle is that kurt is shocked for exactly one panel oh Mm -hmm. you're alive and then after that nope we're good like one dialogue box not even like one panel (laughs) yeah he says you're alive the gargoyle says actually the term the accurate term is animate life that's a facet of creation there's the philosophical conversation and from then on for the rest of the book book Kurt's just into the fact that you know okay so there's a gargoyle I'm going to give this gargoyle full humanity because it's clearly sentient and that's all that matters which I think is that's the crux of Kurt's character displayed in this issue right Kurt is willing to give you humanity if you've earned it by simple fact of stating your humanity that's it And like I love like I'm looking at it now and like his third thing that he says to the gargoyle is him flirting with them. He actually starts it. He's like, 
oh, and a most charming one you are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's so amazing. And then when he's crawling away, interestingly, looking down at a backside view of him, they call him one of the cutest superheroes who's been resting on their perch before. Yeah, I just always love that sort of theme of Kurt having instant affinity with sort of other outsiders. And I think the affinity that he has with female characters as like, we talked about his problematic flirting on the pod before. And that is, you know, an issue that we can take with this character in terms of his representations and sexuality and gender in terms of him not being, I don't know what, I want him to have this kind of deviant masculinity or sort of more progressive masculinity. He doesn't always have that. But at the same time, his affinity that he has with outsider characters, I think speaks to my hopes and dreams for him on that level. And I like the interactions that he has with Octavia here where he doesn't actually flirt with her. He actually does just treat her like a person and like they talk in a normal human way, which again, shouldn't be such a big deal, but these are superhero comics and they have certain sexist conventions which make these things stand out as unusual. This is probably the least problematic flirting he's done in quite some time. (laughs) It it seems to be completely consensual. The gargoyle's into it. I mean, I've got no problem with anything that happens here. And and again, I'm forgiving of him too, you know, but like he's, I, I think it it does come across as charming, as Kurt says to the gargoyle. You know, you know, you, you are charming. The gargoyle's like, you're cute. And I'm like, okay. There, there's been a negotiation of terms here. Everyone's fine with it. I'm got a problem with What do we think about Kurt as kind of like a point of view character here? Because, I mean, again, one of the other things that I think is thematic of his character is him being the character that we're going along with in the story. And it's fun to kind of go along with him in a crazy space because he's not the usual, like, cis, white, straight man that we have as a point of view character in the story and neither is Kitty which we're going to come back to but I mean like what do we make of like him being that character that's wandered that's sort of walking us through through some of these crazy spaces is do we like him in that role yeah I like him in general as a character who tends to react to any adventure with with cool we're going on an adventure because I don't yeah. think any of the other Excalibur <laughs> characters are like that with the possible exception of Megan Maybe. most of them are like oh crap yeah. we got to go do this thing Kurt's all in and I think that makes him sort of a model enthusiasm for the reader oh model enthusiasm enthusiasm I like that and I mean it makes me think of like we've all been like oh we don't ship Kurt with Megan but I mean that's a point of connection between them two like sort of their enthusiasm that's how he describes their connection in a later issue what do we make of him growing as a leader in this issue and I swear to god this is my last Kurt question and we're going to talk about Kitty <laughs> is he a leader or is it or is it that he has the solo story right yeah yeah yes I get that maybe le- maybe leadership is... is the wrong kind of thing yeah. but in just in terms of we see him kind of like solving problems in kind of a thoughtful way like not necessarily by punching the problem but figuring out the solution to the problem and putting those pieces in place even though the literally. solution is a total is a, yeah literally <laughs> even though the solution is totally ridiculous he's like I'm going to throw all this stuff in there and I know this is going to work for reasons in that it's a team on ensemble book and he is the protagonist for much of this issue that puts him in a leadership role to a reader in a way yeah. that I don't know that it would to a fellow character because mostly Kitty, Megan Brian and Rachel aren't around for any of that that adventure with him they don't see it we as a point of view character like you said he's the protagonist for us while we're reading this so we are placed in a position where we start seeing him as oh look kurt's doing a thing so he's very important and he <laughs> i guess saved rachel's life he could have just as easily have killed her permanently i have major problems with his spell nope don't have time to run mad learn magic so i'm just going to throw her body into a literal fire 
with this other body and things are going to happen. I don't know magic, but I don't think that's how magic works. I've read a Doctor Strange comic before. That's, <laughs> that doesn't appear to be how this works. I don't know. It's kind of, to me, like extends from Kurt ends up being successful in these kind of situations because he doesn't overthink problems and he just kind of goes with it. And like he's successful and he's usually successful in this kind of situation by being like that. And in the context of Excalibur, just it being a funny book, right? Like much mm. of this is just the comedy of this that, of course, but like the logic of I'm going to make a cake while I've got flour, eggs and milk. So I'm going to throw them at the bowl and just in a fire and a cake is going to happen. That's literally how he does this. And I, don't... I just feel like I feel like that's so Nightcrawler, though. And like, it, yeah. you know, I brought up in our episode zero, you know, how I thought that the 85 limited series by Dave Cockrum was a basis for Excalibur in certain ways, just because Kurt's approach to problems and approach to solving problems and a- approach to these kind of spaces is so emblematic of the Excalibur approach to these things right and I just like think that the conclusion is a little bit like that Matt I want you to talk about Nightcrawler a little bit you're our guest it's my prerogative to make you talk about Nightcrawler you mentioned (laughs) him being one of your favorite characters from the Uncanny series so what connects you to this character what this makes this a character that you like reading about I think one of the things that always drew me to Nightcrawler as a character is he's a character who's visually different in the X-Men because I I think one of the problems that is pretty common with the X-Men is they're this stand-in for difference and you know they try to be fit into this like you know stand-in for racial difference sometimes but most of them aren't visibly different from the humans that fear and hate them nightcrawler is the character who can't hide that for the most part and at a certain point chooses not to which i always sort of responded to that idea that he is willing to be who he is and to exist as he is and without it being he's not a tortured character either so there's none of the sort of like self-loathing there's none of the like i need to hide who i am he's just a very competent character in his difference which i think was kind of refreshing for x-men characters at the time that i was reading yeah i always love that and it's not that he doesn't deal with shame and and, and self-doubt right he has moments of intense shame and self-doubt but at the same time he's a character who makes you want to believe in that dream of not having to feel those things because it's not that he doesn't like being who he is he gets told that he shouldn't like being who he is but he does inherently love who he is and that's so much of what i love about the character specifically as a contrast with those other sort of tortured marvel monster characters right who had been human had been quote-unquote normal presenting and then they get turned into monster characters and then they're always trying to kind of get back to their normalcy and he doesn't have that right he's born with his mutations he's always looked this way so you can kind of get past some of i don't want to say inherent problems but i mean there is a limit to what those kind of sad monster stories can do in terms of the characters are always trying to reject their difference and that can be like a tired story when you're reading it over like 30 years of comics and it's kind of always the same story of the thing just doesn't want to be the thing anymore let's get to the kitty storyline because i do think that's the meat of the issue and we oh that's maybe a horrible term to use for that particular storyline um but let's get to the kitty story because i do think thematically it's quite a bit more important than than kurt's storyline not that we have to rank these things but anyway so kitty spends much of the issue in the prescribed role of the victim within the movie pastiche overseen by goblin princess Megan. So I thought we'd start for, I've used the term final girl a number of times. I thought maybe since we are academics, since we are teachers, and we might start off with trying to define that final girl concept for our listeners. And Matt, I know you've written about horror. Do, do you want to take a stab at that? What is the character of the final girl? What does that mean? Where does this trope, this concept come from? Yeah, so the final girl trope is, it's essentially the female character 
character in a usually a teen slasher film. The character is usually sort of virginal and or sexless. Often a tomboy like Laurie Strode from the Halloween first Halloween film is kind of the prototypical final girl. She's presented as less sexual and less feminine as the, the female victims around her and usually is put into some confrontation with the killer throughout the film and defeats them and at the end of the film usually with some penetrative device. So uh, Kitty kind of falls squarely into this and I think it's that Carol Clover I think is the yeah who came up with the term final girl and it's one of those academic things that's like just branched out into the common uh, vernacular at this point like you know to the point of having a you know TV series and movies with that term and Kitty is very much like in put in that role in this although also weirdly not for the first time like she's been put in this role multiple times before I wanted to ask Andrew because Andrew I know you've talked about that history with Kitty Pride before even in a TED talk I believe which I think I've watched in the past that like some of the history of Kitty as a character being put into certain roles in which she's kind of set up as this teen girl fighting monsters which are not necessarily final girl roles but she certainly has this sort of context and history that comes with her into this presentation would you like to speak to that a little bit um yeah I mean I think I can she's the sort of naive innocent victim character but she also has the symbolic attribute of being invincible effectively because of phasing so that on the one hand makes her ideal as a final girl but it also makes her imperfect as a final girl because she can't really be hurt um so you get to get that kind of um walked around in this issue in terms of just for no reason whatsoever brian can claw her and he does um so she's a viewpoint character she's the innocent character she's also sexualized a lot which is con- actually consistent with the final girl even though they're um asexual in nature uh and uh, yeah I-, I think her powers present an obstacle that the narrative has to get around so it does so for um, undisclosed reasons. I mean, we can think about how traumatizing that must be for Kitty, though, to be a character who's usually un- untouchable. And in this point in Excalibur 2, she's specifically like struggling with her phasing power and is unable to be solid. You know, how jarring it must be for her to be solid and like how that informs. She's having her mind manipulated here too in some respect, but like I just think about that moment for her and how terrifying that must be for her. I mean, I do think there's something interesting about that because I think one of the arcs of the final girl often is like, you know, they are, you know, they are virginal and sexless kind of to begin with and that they are sexualized um, and that the threat is essentially like a sexual threat to them and so i do i feel like the arc of her confrontations with brian almost kind of mirror that like it starts out with this like you know rambo-esque sort of action fantasy where he's like this hyper masculine soldier and everything and she's very she's presented as less feminine then she's sort of sexualized as like the cheerleader running from the slasher and then there it becomes even though it's not explicitly sexual that the last confrontation between them is this dance um this like very intimate like dance that escalates and that and you know this might be going a bit far that he doesn't have the stamina to keep up with ultimately yep. which is like a whole thing that I think that also fits in with the idea of you know that ability to be touched is also this like ability to be like threatened sexually in a way that she's not prior to that yeah and if I think about like I'm looking at the fight scene between her and Brian like the first one in the Rambo setting and the ways that she so he's gra- she's grabbed initially by Brian by the hair which you know is often a thing that gets done to long haired female characters in fight scenes it's sort of you know an emphasis on their femininity within the fight scene and the like weakness of their femininity being represented by their long hair it's like a whole thing but she fights him off and gets this huge knife (laughs) like out of her (laughs) that's pinned to her thigh and like puts it under his throat which is you know has a lot of phallic connotations in terms of her regaining power over this figure right and then 
then she gets transformed to the into the cheerleader. She gets sort of depowered and feminized and like what's going on with these shifts? I mean, she does also at the end get a big ass sword that she Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk about it, that right? too. So I it's part of a sort that. of continuous thread. I, it's so this this book came out in 89, January of 89. Carol Clover didn't write Men, Women and Chainsaws is the book where she talks about this. She didn't write that till 92 or she didn't publish it till 92. So clearly Claremont hasn't read it, but he's clearly enough aware of the tropes to to the fact that like he's he's trying to make meta movie commentary throughout this entire issue with Kitty's story, which I think is what makes it so interesting. You know, Teen Bimbo War Gore Shocker number 23 is very derivative of the of the first 22 films in the franchise. Yeah. Um, that, <laughs> that um the argument that Clover makes in her book is, you know, Matt touched on it. The the final girl starts out as sexless, but she is sexualized by the narrative to where right. she typically and the, the classic example is Laurie Strode. It's it's a uh, Clover's example throughout the book. Strode is only a able to overcome overpower and defeat Michael by essentially Michael Myers by essentially symbolically taking on this sexual predator role which is hence the phallic object that you kill somebody with which is what Kitty ultimately does I mean the last confrontation is not the dance the last confrontation is her taking the sword and slicing Brian open and then slicing Megan open and not just slicing she throws the sword at Megan and penetrates her that's, but you know we have like some, the fight. some interesting gender and sexual mm-hmm. stuff going on there in as much as mm-hmm. she's taking on Liana's soul sword, yes. right? Yeah. It's like the phallic object that belongs to her like bestie queer subtext like mm-hmm. friend, right? So what's it's, going I on? I mean her there? soulmate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. a lot there's a lot of which is the entire so if you want to go through the mythology of Kitty having the armor and the sword, Kitty gets the armor and sword whenever Ilyana is incapacitated or unable to wield it because Ilyana considers her not just through like headcanon shipping in canon context Ilyana sees Kitty as like her soulmate that inherits you know and I get that and it's weird because Kitty when this first starts is is Ilyana's brother's girlfriend but Ilyana sees her as a soulmate in some way so that when I'm dead you inherit my literal soul which is what the soul sword is. So you get an aspect of my power, which I think, I don't think you can ignore the queer subtext because there's no way to read that. That's not intentional. Even if you want to take the sexual part out of it, the romantic, you know, the metaphysical connection between them is very clear and very, very explicit. But even more basically fighting back against, she keeps being trying to put in these generic feminine narratives, right? And she is fighting back through the help of another woman against this man trying to attack her. And I think that that matters in terms of differentiating from the final girl trope a little bit i mean what do we make of her sort of subjectivity throughout this because i mean she's commenting on everything that's happening like we get copious copious like thought bubbles of kitty commenting on the action here and commenting on the ridiculousness of the action how do we feel about this as a technique that's sort of you know is this interrogating the trope is it justifying the like is it doing that postmodern thing where it's justifying the trope by being yeah like by being like we're aware of it look we're aware of what's going on so it's okay that we're putting Kitty in these sexualized positions and doing all of these things. Well, there's a, a slight frame to it in that um, we're introduced to these like film critic poser punk guys. Yeah. Uh, at the and start, their friend the Anna, I'm in this story. Yes. <laughs> I was wondering if we were going to bring that up. Yes. So, so I think he's definitely sort of trying to establish, you know, we're going to poke some fun uh, at movies for a little bit there. Do you think it's effective though, Andrew? Like, I mean, I know you've talked in the past about having some issues with kind of the sexualization of Kitty in terms of, and again, when we say sexualized, 
sexualization, like we don't necessarily mean just that being sexy is bad or something like that. When we talk about sort of sexualization as a trope, we're talking about sort of, you know, exploiting the sexuality of a character. And even that can be good and bad depending on how it's done. It kind of depends a lot on gaze. It depends a lot on agency. And so that's always going to be complicated when we're talking about a teen girl character within a genre that has a certain history of representation and is presumably being sold to a majority male audience. So like, I mean, and is being written by adult men as well. So you have like a lot of those, I don't want to say inherently problematic, but certainly like elements of her sexualization that we always have to think about if we're going to think about these things as political dynamics, right? So how do we feel about the sexualization of the character here? Was it a problem for you, Andrew, reading it? Did you think it sidestepped some of those things? Did you think it managed some of those problems effectively? I think it wanted to have it both ways. I I think it was clearly setting Kitty up for male gaze whilst giving her, you know, power and agency through, you know, this narrative focus. Coming back to what Matt was saying, I don't believe there is a final girl younger than 16, right? Kitty's 15. She's she's got to be too young for this. In you mean in, in cinema in, history. Yeah, uh, I hope. <laughs> I guess maybe yeah, there's some freshmen. I, I want to say maybe there's some early or some of the Halloween sequels cuz I know I know there's like Laurie Strode's niece or something is one of the characters and I don't know off the top of my head how old she is. I mean Kitty is on the younger side for sure. And I think it's I mean that's the weird thing about Kitty Pride as a character and I think it's it is that she is always positioned as younger but also often positioned as sort of I don't know if this would be a term but like subject of like the fanboy gaze more than like just an explicitly male gaze. Like she is the character yeah, yeah, that like fair. that you know male comic fans are meant to sort of like fall in love with and also she's just a very mutable character i mean and i feel like the sequences with her kind of reflect that she tends to be a character who is whoever the writer needs her to be while still somehow having a personality that's distinct but the roles that she's put in tend to shift from one book to the next from one character or from one writer to the next and even with claremont writing her he often shifts the roles that she's in and i feel like this is almost commenting on that either consciously or unconsciously that she goes from like you know the soldier to the cheerleader to the you know the elegant dancer like he's drawing on things from her past but also it just highlights how how often the character shifts yeah oh god i want to get back to so many of those things but i just wanted to say quickly i mean it's one of the things that i think draw me to the characters of kitty and kurt specifically that they are these kind of self-conscious characters like existing with within these wacky zany spaces except for they go about it very differently right like kurt doesn't have like the thought bubbles the way kitty does he's sort of saying things and interacting with people but her journey is so much in the thought bubbles right and in sort of the direct interaction with us through those thought bubbles which we are privy to and there's sort of an assumption of privacy with thought bubbles that bring us into her space which is different than we get in Kurt's adventure in this story right I mean I want to come back to that idea of the fanboy gaze Matt because I think that's such an interesting interesting idea like what do you mean when you say that like what kind of like ideas are sort of bound up and talking about the fanboy gaze and Kitty Pride? what is the fanboy gaze how is it different from that traditional male gaze I think it's almost a, I don't want to say a subversion but it's almost a, a different version of you know there's the mary sue idea which has lots of problems it's particularly in how it's applied traditionally like the mary sue is thought of as like the writer insert character who is hyper powerful or hyper capable gets to interact with all the characters that you want them to interact with gets to be the center of the narrative and i think for me like the fanboy gaze idea is it's that character but that is positioned in a way that is more acceptable to the fan that's likely to criticize the mary sue you know in that maybe they are a bit more sexualized they are a bit more 
are presented as like an object of desire in some way. So it's it's almost like blending the girl next door sort of approachability. You know, Kitty is the girl that like you would be friends with if you were in the X-Men universe, if you are that sort of like, you know, slightly less competent male nerd who, you know, wants the power fantasy but recognizes that you don't have it. You could at least, kind of, <laughs> you know, Kitty seems more accessible than someone like Rogue or Storm or Rachel or even Megan for all mm-hmm. the sort of problems with Megan as a character. Well, would well, you she's say a nerd too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Of, of someone who's who's like she's like honestly, you probably wouldn't be friends with Kitty if you were. Oh God, she'd be so like, intense. She'd be such an intense person. I like, Kitty, think that I wouldn't last Kitty's long as a entire friend. character for all the for all the fanboyish love of her. Kitty's entire character prior to this and after this, whenever she meets, you know, Professor X Xavier is a jerk, and the reason Professor Xavier is a jerk is because Professor Xavier wants me to hang out with children my own age. He's right, okay? (laughs) He is 100% right in that comic, but it's presented as him being wrong. Like, the punishment that Kitty was was being given was, yeah, I would like to put you on a team with the other 14-year-olds, you know? And she's like, no, no, I want to hang out with, you know, my 19-year-old boyfriend and my my best friend Wolverine, who is 70 at this point? You know, know, like, the logic of it is weird. And then here, like, we see in the next issue, too, that she's gonna, sorry, this is skipping ahead, but in the next issue, she's gonna reject going back to the New Mutants, and she's like, no, I want to stay with these other people. Yeah, and and she's gonna chastise them for being children. Yeah. You know, she's kind of, she's actually the know-it-all annoying girl in high school who's like, I am so much more more mature of you because my boyfriend's in college. That's who she actually is, but we forgive her because of how she's portrayed as a protagonist, largely because she's been put in these situations. I think the lampshading works, you said the postmodernness, and I think it works in this one because not only is it being done, but it's being done as part of the story as opposed to typically it's just like we're aware of this, we're deconstructing it, don't worry, and then nothing's done with it. She has conscious thought bubbles of of, oh my god i'm a cheerleader now i hate this i hate this i hate this but i can't help running away something is you know the mind control aspect of it she knows she's compelled to re- fulfill these roles which is a weird metafictional thing because you're kitty pride you're a fictional character in an x-men comic book your entire life is being compelled to fill roles that that's what you are so yeah but i, I mean that works so well as a commentary as matt was suggesting right, right? and i mean sorry mm-hmm. can i just like ask one more thing about for for matt or whoever wants to take this sort of about the fanboy gaze like for you with Kitty, is it like wanting Kitty sort of, you know, as a romantic partner or is it identifying with Kitty or is it both? And that's kind of where this fanboy gaze is kind of located. I think it is the both. You know, for me, I mean, you know, like I said, I kind of put my position myself as like, I am this person um, or at least was at a certain point in my life anyway. So I'll just you know, say like part of it for me, I think was, you know, I grew up reading like Encyclopedia Brown and, you know, Encyclopedia Brown was like the nerdy guy who was like super smart and could solve mysteries, but he wasn't very tough. And then he had his partner, Sally. <laughs> who was like a foot taller than him and could beat up anyone who was going to pick on him. And Kitty kind of falls into that role of like, you know, she's clearly smart. She's clearly tough. She's clearly capable, but also seems like she would, although I I definitely take the point that she probably wouldn't actually give you the time of day. She seems like she would, um, or at least seems more like she would than most of the other characters. Because she's 14 or 15. Right, right. And I I do think, I was going to say, I mean, kind of talking about the, the idea of what it's doing with the trope and if it works, one problem, 
problem that I have with it is actually it's doing it in the context of what's going on with Megan and Rachel in the book because they both are, you know, Rachel, like Rachel in the previous issue is like, she's the reason why they go there, right? You know, so it feels like she's meant to be central. And then they immediately sort of sideline her at the end of that issue. And she has two lines in this issue. And then Megan is not just that she's not herself because Brian technically also isn't himself, but she's not herself in a way that feels much more out of character. Like Brian is this like hyper masculine sort of thing and kind of like the romantic lead, the heroic lead, but as a bad guy in like the very Brian way that fits his character still. And it feels like an extension of that or a commentary on that. Megan just feels like kind of a stand in for, you know, the Goblin Queen. Like she just kind of, it's not really saying anything about her as a character or even really her relationship with Brian. A lot of the things that she's kind of, you know, the role that she's putting him in on Kitty, unless you get into some weird deep dive of, you know, how young Megan is and her seeing Kitty as herself, which I don't think was intentional. I was going to ask you about that specifically because I was like, Megan is on the throne watching this play out. She is in theory in control of this fantasy, at least on a subconscious level. So what the heck is going on there? What is going on with her projecting herself into Kitty and putting her in these situations with Brian? I mean, we've been talking about the abusive elements of the Brian and Megan relationship throughout the podcast up to this point. Is that a factor in what's going on here? I mean, I wish it was, but I don't know that it is. Well, I mean, when I think of, look at some of Megan's dialogue when she finally does speak is that you're completely right, Matt, that she speaks very few times, you know, in the dancing sequence where Brian loses power and, you know, which again is interesting that once he's put in this more feminized role, he fails, right? And that's when Kitty kind of starts to take over. But you see um, Goblin Princess Megan saying, typical, you always fail me, Brian. She locks a collar around his neck and this is when he's going to be transformed into the BDSM outfit scenario. You always fail me, Brian, when I need you most, right? Mm -hmm. So she is punishing Brian and there's like an anger at Brian here and in the previous issue to this she'd like sent the film out to like grasp Brian and tie him and bind him I mean there's something going on here with Megan and Brian right well I think it could work if there was some sort of implied jealousy between Brian and Kitty on Megan's part or if it was Courtney Ross that she was turning mm, Brian yeah. on even though that obviously can't happen um but no I I agree with Matt like it feels like it's it's reaching for something but I can't really extract what that is you don't think it's just reaching for I, I think ver from on our very first episode I said you know one of the things about Inferno and all these books uh, and Excalibur in general is hey look 14 Matt 14 year old Mav we are exposing you to BDSM have a nice life that's like <laughs> <laughs> that's that's one of the things this book does and is the narrative reaching for female empowerment by putting Megan who has up until this point definitively and very intentionally been a passive character even under the passivity of being controlled by Inferno she does take an aggressive she is the dominant partner in this evil though it may be incarnation of the two of them she puts him on a chain she has him in his little BDSM collar and thong yeah, and that would She's be scandalous for that time period right we should I was right. gonna say like I mean Havoc's like costume in inferno this is more this way is more. like yeah. way yes. more <laughs> or less yeah yeah and, and but but even before that even when she's just ordering him around she is sitting calmly you know during the dancing scene megan's sitting calmly um at the table enjoying her cognac or whatever while she watches them kill each other through dancing and she's just enjoying it playing with it so this is in many ways the i mean yes i know she's not in her most in her right mind but it's the most powerful 
Megan has been emotionally up until this point. Now, is it problematic that she can only do it through through becoming sexualized against her will? Sure. But it is a weird, it's, it's starting to move into acknowledging that she is not entirely Brian's slave. It's hard, right? Because Megan at this point in her character wouldn't really be capable of having the self-consciousness to reflect right. on what she might have done subconsciously here. So I'm not sure how the story could have done it better in some ways. And I'm not, it sounds like I'm like defending its deficiencies or something. And like I am and I'm not just because yeah. I think it is a problem. And yet I'm just not sure how I would have done it differently because it wouldn't be convincing for Megan to just suddenly realize, oh my God, I was like identifying with Kitty and these slasher roles because Megan, keep in mind, is like a TV addict. So like, I mean, it does mm -hmm. make a kind of sense for her to be enacting these kind of scenarios. It at least makes more sense than like Wanda being <laughs> addicted to American sitcoms, which they tried to make work. They tried to make work, but I still think this <laughs> Megan thing theoretically makes a little bit more sense. But for her to place Kitty in all of these disempowered roles and have Brian attack her and be kind of working through her issues with Brian would make a lot of sense to me. But again, I don't think it would be convincing for Megan to suddenly realize, oh, that's what I was doing. I get who I am now. This is like, well, this was totally that, productive. Oh, okay. And you're saying that's why it works because she, because what works for me is at the end, you know, she's done this thing and mm -hmm. she's gonna, you know, she's going to have a flashback to it next issue. Um, so brief spoilers, but she's done this thing. And on the last page, she's appalled by her behavior. Yeah. Yeah. She's not appalled by being sexualized. She's appalled by using her power over her boyfriend and yeah, her friend. Yeah. That's, mm -hmm. you know, take a moment and she's not even appalled by being controlled by a demon. It's literally just this, oh, I hurt Brian. I hurt Kitty. That seems very on brand for her to me, uh, or at least for her as we've seen her so far, because she doesn't have that much sense of self. What really hurts her is that she feels like she has betrayed them. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, that seems very true to her character as well being mm -hmm. she's an empathic character that's like the nature of her character and yeah, I mean, her, her empathy is not always as self-conscious as it could be but that's part of how she works as a character because she operates through relationships with other people for good or bad i was gonna say i think to anna's point too it, like on that last page it is pointed out like by kitty and her thought balloons at least basically it says uh how can you bear to look at me or how can you bear to touch me even talk to me after what i did and brian says because i know that wasn't the real you anymore than it was me and kitty has a thought balloon that says wrong cap pieces of us mm -hmm. um that the idea that like no this is like everything that's happening is a reflection of who they are including what megan was doing is in some way a reflection of who she is but i definitely agree that the character maybe wasn't and it gets to andrew's point earlier of like how soon they're thrown into this that megan wasn't defined enough maybe as a character yet to really have this be the storyline for her to have that sort of like level of self-consciousness yeah there's a, a lack of callback too in the sense that like megan has been through this she has been a werewolf right basically she's been a monster and i just feel like it was weird that that's not really brought up because the because the reader does i mean you know because you had access to the comics but but 14 yeah, year old Nav in 1989 yeah i i don't know that right like i don't know that she was a werewolf and the internet being where what it was or the lack of internet being what it was at that point and access to comic comic stores being you know i worked at one at this point but had not yet read i'm the captain britain comics so if you're saying that time when you were a werewolf in in captain britain or you know you know comics from marvel uk that there is literally no way you can actually check up what am i supposed to do with that like i don't know there would there'd be no way for me to pick up on that there's no trade paperback of it yet there's nothing so you're you'd be calling back to something that i cannot possibly know or have any hope of knowing but that would not stop claremont for a second right? that's true <laughs> do a flashback. for for for, for claremont especially 
good, good. Fair enough. I keep thinking about a point that Matt brought up earlier that, you know, the two of the female characters get largely sidelined and Kitty is the one that doesn't get sidelined and it is allowed to kind of like have this role where although she's forced into these typical feminine victim roles, she's allowed to comment and step outside of those roles. And yet Megan and Rachel aren't necessarily given that agency here. And I do think that's an interesting choice, interesting, perhaps in a problematic way, but it makes me think about the nature of Rachel and Megan's powers as well. And the way kind of the hyper emotionality of their powers is often used to take them off the board and how we read that in terms of gender. Mm -hmm. I don't know, because it is the more I think about Rachel's story here. And as much as I like Kurt's little story here, Rachel is a mannequin that Kurt is carrying around for most (laughs) of this issue, right? And like, I mean, that's, you know, not a great role for Rachel, even though it's like (laughs) symbolically significant in some way, right? And then like Megan is pretty much off the board. And it is the emotional instability of both of those characters that does that. And I have a little bit of suspicion about that as a, as a kind of gendered trope. Well, and especially when you factor in like Kitty's sort of, you know, not like other girls-ness of, yeah, yeah. you know, her personality. She's the cool girl, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in comparison and, and I mean, to, that's know, a that's a good thing about Kitty, and I think that, I mean, another thing I wanted to say, just Matt, about your, your thoughts about Kitty, and sorry, we'll come back to you in just a sec, but just that a lot of the ways that she straddles boundaries is why she's such a powerful character for, like, queer affiliations yeah. as well, right? Like, it can be both things. Like, she can be very appealing to, like, a straight fanboy, and she can be very appealing to like a queer reader for the exact same reasons right and like she's a character that there are so many fan battles and debates about partly because she appeals to everybody right but anyway matt please please go ahead yeah no absolutely and i think like and some of it is how much it's positioned against like rachel and megan you know megan i guess for lack of a better word at the time i think was kind of positioned as brian's ditzy blonde girlfriend you know or i guess more charitably like his sort of like fairy girlfriend and rachel is much more of a sort of overtly physically i mean again as probably you know a 14 year old at the time a much more overtly sexualized character visually if not in her personality so you know kitty being relatively like less sexual or less sexualized at the time i think there's something about that that yeah that that claremont is kind of leaning into sort of some problematic ideas about gender and emotions and you know you know he's kind of done this going back as far as like you know gene gray and like the dark phoenix the idea of like too much power and too much um, too many emotions are the downfall of female characters for him that's kind of like a trope that he revisits again and again and yeah like i mean we'll say for our listeners we know that dark phoenix saga isn't as simple as that and yet like it definitely does play into some of those tropes about female power at the very least well i don't want to get everybody shouting at us that like you're not getting the story it's about the way she was manipulated by men and like i'm like no no we know andrew has written about dark phoenix saga many many times like we know i want to i want to do one thing on that too because i not on dark phoenix but on andrew you called her like sort of the the mary sue this referring to kitty which i've also written about and that term gets used in the derogative in a way mostly that i think is almost unfair here because that's kitty's role and i think it kind of compares anna just said that one of the things that's interesting about her is that she can be not even just the male gaze character she's the fanboy gaze character why i'm supposed to like kitty is not only is she cool she's cool like 14 year old boys and i can have sex with her is like you know in a way that megan is not right so 
so I get that. And she's cool from, you know, from the fangirl, from a, a queer gaze, because you can be her. But in a Mary Sue way, you, she is what Buffy the Vampire Slayer is. Buffy the Vampire is Kitty Pride fanfic, right? It's just like a, I will be the cool girl who's also pretty, who's also smart, and I'm the main character, and I'm the hero. And I don't think that's necessarily bad. I mean, I, I, think I don't think it's necessarily bad in the sense that that's every male superhero. So yes, <laughs> right, right. And the thing about the Mary Sue, the history of that term is that it was, you know, from female authored fan fiction, specifically Star Trek fan fictions, largely, in which female characters wrote OC characters into that space who were those hypercondic competent characters. And then part of the unfairness of that label is that like, it's so bad when women do that. But when men do that, it's just the story. Like, how it's is Kirk not just, is. how is Kirk not just a Mary Sue? But if you add a new female character, it's bad because you're a woman doing that and trying to have a ridiculous fantasy in a ridiculous fantasy space, which is what ridiculous fantasy spaces are for. <laughs> so. My argument, my argument has always been, this was, I wrote a thing when the episode seven of, of Star Wars came out um, and people were like, the Force Awakens, Ray is a Mary Sue. And there's no, she's not. And I was like, yes, she is. So is Luke Skywalker. Yeah, yeah. So is Batman. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Batman is the ultimate Mary Sue. Batman is the ultimate Mary Sue. He can do anything and he's just a dude. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, there's, I, I mean, yes, I, I do see some of that in Kitty, but that's what makes her interesting. So uh, criticism's complicated. Yeah, for sure, <laughs> for sure. I, I think we have to wrap up, but is there anything else that any of you really desperately wanted to discuss that we didn't get to? I mean, we could certainly talk more about Brian's outfit if you want, and certainly the way that Davis <laughs> frames it, you know, our most substantial glimpses of it are all from behind, which is interesting. The fact that he got that past CCA, what the yeah, CCA is impressive. neutered by then, but the, it's not, it's still in effect and the fact that he got that past yeah. CCA, I, I mean, have, Inferno I is full yeah. of these outfits. I should have said that in my first impressions rereading it, I was just like, oh my god, Brian's outfit, I like kind of forgot about that, that is quite an outfit. And to be fair, in response to my other comment about Megan, Brian is the actual, like, ditzy blonde of Excalibur, so yes, and it's very yes. much treated as such. I was just like, I should. Also, you said we'll have it up on our Twitter. Yeah, it'll be on the YouTube video too. I should, we've never mentioned that. If you're not, oh there is a YouTube yeah. version of this, and like, and yeah, I'm very much looking forward to putting this in the YouTube edit so you can see what we're talking about and why we're hemming and hawing around, even knowing how to describe it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I don't want to describe it in negative terms because you know, like, no. it means very different things to very different people. But it's definitely an instance in which it's surprising, given the censorship of comics that was still going on at this point. There was a choice made. Yes, <laughs> there was a clear choice made and yes definitely check out our youtube videos mav has been doing excellent youtube videos for the show and i know many of you have been checking them out they're amazing yeah yeah they are they're relatively popular andrew any final thoughts that you would like to add to this combo one thing i would say is that um, inferno is famous for some tremendous and complicated representations of grief Mm -hmm. uh the two big ones being the image of Jean gray looking over the body of of the goblin queen and just complex emotions or colossus peeling the armor off of what turns out to be his young sister complex emotions I really wanted that from the scene where Kitty finds the soul sword. Um, and I, I think we didn't really get it. It was too rushed and we don't even get a visual representation of her grief. It, it's a, a thought during a battle. That's it. I, I thought there could have been something more there. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And yet by the same token, I'm just like the most pathos of the issue coming from Kurt being sad about the gargoyle dying also <laughs> seems really Excalibur to me that it's just defying so many things. But I mean, that's like good and bad, right? Like, I mean, it just again i think it feels very excalibur but whether you buy into that as a good thing or a bad thing is maybe an open question my king i couldn't do it 
Excalibur cannot be lost. Other men... Do as I command. One day, a king will come. And the sword will rise again. Okay, I think we will leave it there. We could probably talk about all of these things for another hour or two. But before we completely wrap up, Matt, is there anything that you would like to plug a final time for our listeners? Where can people check you out if they want to follow your work or follow you? The easiest place to find me is on Twitter. I'm at a boy called Monk. And I also write periodically when I'm work avoiding my grad school stuff on the Kino Club 313 blog. I write on comics, I write on film, I write on television. You have introduced me to several movies through that blog, which you're probably not aware awesome. of that I've really enjoyed. So thank you so much for your work there. Very cool. Next, in one week's time, we will be on to episode eight, in which we will be discussing Excalibur number eight, Excalibur's New York Adventure. It is, as the title suggests, a rare issue in which the members of Excalibur are not in the UK, but also not in a New York that's demon infested, just regular old New York. It's also our first non-Alan Davis penciled issue. We've got a fill-in penciler in Ron Lim, fitting for a fish-out-of-water tale in which Kitty connects with old friends, Megan makes new friends, Brian makes new enemies, and Kurt steals an airplane. Lots to talk about, as usual. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us like and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for future episodes let us know you've been getting into some wonderful conversations on Twitter please keep that going we'd love to hear from you you can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via Twitter as I mentioned at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you Andrew and Mav for another exuberant conversation thank you Matt for lending us your smarts thank you all for listening and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out.